I'm Carl Helliker, and welcome to Book Chat. Today joining us is Peter Kafer, the author of Charles Brockton's Brown Revolution and the Birth of the American Gothic. Welcome to Book Chat, Peter. Thank you very much. It's nice to have you with us. First of all, the obvious question for our audience, who was Charles Brockton Brown? Well, it's a simple question, but um, it gets to the, the essence of the achievement of this American writer. Um, he was born into a Philadelphia Quaker family in 1771. And on the mother's side, they were Armits and Lyles, um, being mostly craftsmen um, and minor merchants. Um, and that was where essentially the wealth of the family came from. And if you look into the, uh, the, the history of the Armits and the Lyles, there really isn't that much in the record books. On the father's side, he came um, from the Browns and the Churchmans. And once you look into the, uh, the archives here, you begin to discover a really fascinating story. So um, going back in that Brown Churchman side of the family, turns out they came from Chester County, Pennsylvania. Um, and in Chester County, Pennsylvania, they were mystics, um, Quaker mystics, um, from a very radical strain of Quakerism. And if, as you pursue the story back to where they came from in England, they derive that side of the family from uh, the part of England, the Midlands, where George Fox and Quakers, Quakerism itself um, 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 originally uh, um, really took root. Um, and when you begin to look at, at, at the Browns back there, it really, you begin, to, you begin to get into the Da Vinci Code territory, um, where they're religious seekers, um, uh, seeking out, questing for um, new forms of spiritual knowledge, um, being very, very radical. And they were among George Fox's earliest uh, converts. So anyway, this part of the story um, was something I did not know about, um, even though I did my graduate work in American religious history, but as to how uh, mystically radical the early Quakers in Pennsylvania were. Um, and the reason we don't know about it is because the Quakers in the mid 18th century wrote it out of their history. It was a little, it was a little embarrassing um, when, the, when you're a Quaker merchant, say in 1750s, 1760s Philadelphia, when your grandfather at one point um, walked off into the wilderness in a sackcloth to convert Indians. Um, anyway, so that is the really truly interesting side of, of Charles Brockton Brown's uh, genealogy. And when you trace it back through Chester County, um, and back up into Philadelphia, the Brown Churchmans were amongst the Quaker spiritual leaders in the 1750s, um, 1760s. Um, and his writing is going to be a lot about this. Um, again, he's born in 1771, and he's born in the midst of a kind of cultural civil war where the Quakers are being displaced in Philadelphia and Pennsylvania life by new groups that have migrated in over the course of the 18th century. The most aggressive of these is the Scotch-Irish Presbyterians. Um, so in the first 10 years of, of Charles Brockton Brown's life, the American Revolution, of course, is breaking out and uh, developing in, in, in Philadelphia. And he, um, along with his family, suffers the abuse put upon them by uh, the revolutionaries. And this, is, this really forms, um, I think, his imagination this experience of abuse during the revolution, which is quite different from the experience certainly of uh, most American Whigs. And that is what his writing is really going to be about as well, but in a disguised form. Um, so those are basically the, the, the relative facts of, uh, of who he was. 
Thank you. That uh, does give a, a great amplification on uh, Brown. Within the subtitle of your book, or actually the title itself, it says the birth of the American Gothic. Gothic literature is a, a term I think we frequently hear bandied about and is often described, but not always so well defined. Can you talk about Gothic literature for us a little? Right. I give a very general definition of Gothic in this, and I don't want to get academic, um, because what he achieved is something larger than just a small little development that should be of interest to academic historians or literary historians. My definition of Gothic um, here is basically this. It's a formula that tells a story that has hero villains or heroine villains pursuing innocent victims. Um, it's in a haunt haunted setting. Um, and the key component here is um, the uh, situation where the past is bleeding into the, into the present. The past refuses to stay dead. And the final component is there's a tendency to write to excess or to depict uh, extreme situations. Um, uh, a classic example of this for, um, formula would be the movie Poltergeist, say. I mean, but there's so many American movies that fit this as well as novels. In Poltergeist, about 15 years ago, um, the, the, the hero uh, villain is a uh, land development company. The innocent victims are the people that live in this development and, and particularly the family that is the focus of the movie. Um, the place of haunting is um, this development anywhere USA um, and the past bleeding into the future, into the present is the graveyard that the um, developer built, built his development on. Um, and, and this is the essential formula that we see in um, so many Gothic movies today, but in Gothic literature um, since the, the days of Brockton Brown, and he invented or discovered rather the formula. It's interesting. You make some very good points in your book, interesting points about the difference since uh, Brockton was the innovator of American Gothic. Uh, he obviously looked at European Gothic, but there were some very pronounced differences between the two. Um, one of the main points of my book is that he didn't um, create out of literary influence. What Charles Brockton Brown essentially did was find a form to um, um, place his own imagine, imagination experience into. So while he, of course, read what he called terrific novels um, that were written in Europe, say, uh, um, Horace Walpole's The uh, um, Castle of Toronto and uh, Radcliffe's the Mysteries of Adolfo, uh, um, Gregory Lewis's um, The Monk, they really did influence uh, any of his novels. Um, when he was young and in school and trying to begin as a writer, what influenced him most were, say, the novels of Henri Rousseau, and particularly what was translated into English as The New Eloisa, as well as um, the novels of Samuel Richardson. And when he started writing, this was the form he um, experimented in, but it was so feeble because it wasn't a part of his experience. And it was only really when he began writing out of his own experience, which was grounded in, in his family's horrors and his people's horrors during the revolution in Philadelphia, that his prose um, and his art came alive. So while um, you can point to European um, examples of, um, of uh, horror writing or Gothic writing, he really is idiosyncratic and totally original in what he did. Now, his specific uh, 
well, I shouldn't say the only one, but I guess maybe one of his more noted novels that deals with the Gothic form is, is Wieland. Right. Can you tell us about that novel? Yes, this is, this is a novel that literally just poured out of him um, after many years of trying to write um, unsuccessfully on 1798 over the course of about four or five months, this novel poured out of him. And it's essentially a rehearsal of his family's historical experience his people, the Quakers' historical experience in Pennsylvania, and he subtitles it an American tale, so he sees in some way it as being um, a summation of a generic American experience. Um, and this novel is a three-generational novel about the Whelan family, um, and it begins in Germany with uh, the Whelan patriarch, who becomes a religious um, devotee of the Camisards, which is a um, mystical French um, Protestant sect that derived from the Albigensians or um, Cathars of 12th century France. Um, and this, this family patriarch in late 1600s Germany comes across some, some um, Camisard writings and he is converted by them and he now devotes himself to um, religion with all of his essence. Um, he moves to London to try to pursue his um, spiritual knowledge and spiritual growth, and he's not satisfied. And he migrates to Pennsylvania, where five miles outside of Philadelphia, um, he buys a farm, which he calls Medigan. Um, he um, finds a wife and has a family. And after having his two children, he goes off into the wilderness to convert the Indians, because he's driven by this spiritual quest. He eventually comes back to the farm at Medigan, um, where he builds a temple on the property where he goes to devote himself more and more to the spirit and to, to God. Um, and during one of his um, um, visits to his temple, he dies by spontaneous combustion. That is, a light sudden, suddenly surrounds the temple and he's lit on fire, and the next thing the family knows, he's ashes. Um, and the, the, this is right at the beginning of the novel, um, first chapter, and what the entire novel is about is, this, is the next generation, um, the, the children of this religious fanatic who are named Theodore and Clara. And they grow up at Medingen over the course of the, the mid-18th century, and it seems to be an idyllic... Um, uh, American setting where they're deists, they spend their time playing music, reading Cicero, and it seems to be this very rational, pleasant life. But at some, at one point in a story, um, Theodore begins to hear voices, um, um, which are very strange. And he tells his sister and his wife and the sister's uh, friend Henry Playle about these, and they think it's strange, but uh, no big deal. Then he hears more voices. Um, and what this is, is this interloper character named Carwin um, has a ventriloquistic um, talent and he's just playing with his family. Carwin is uh, having sex with the family maid um, and he uses his, his ventriloquistic talent basically to keep the family out of the quarters where he and the maid are or to manipulate, have fun with them in different ways. Um, unfortunately, eventually, Theodore begins to actually hear voices that are coming from inside his head. And these voices eventually um, tell him, and he thinks they're from God, the, the voices tell him to um, sacrifice his family, which he does. He, in a very gruesome chapter, murders his entire family. Um, 
um, and that's near the end of the book. And the book is uh, essentially then about uh, religious fanaticism um, within the context of uh, the history of Pennsylvania. What impact did the book have when it was written? Um, not a lot um, on, on uh, his, his generation. He didn't sell very many copies. It had a profound impact on most subsequent American writers because this is really the first serious book of fiction. Um, and it was recognized by such as writers from Poe to Hawthorne to George Lepard and beyond. Um, but unfortunately for him, he didn't sell many copies, so it didn't help his, his uh, style of living at all. Right. Now, you mentioned Poe. Poe, of course, remem we remember indelibly as the master of Gothic horror, and Brown is not remembered at all. Why, why is that? Um, Poe um, po does away with the historical context to his stories. The essence of Charles Brockton Brown's Gothic is he's setting these stories in an American historical context. Um, Poe does away with all of the history, mostly because in his own life he has no real family history to fall back on or that's a part of him since his mother died when he was two, his father deserted him before then, and he never really had a family. So what Poe does is he just um, uh, 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 ratchets, ratchets down the um, essence of the Gothic um, to demented states of consciousness. Um, where, and, and, and that's the focus of these short stories where Brown really doesn't do that. The, the, to, to appreciate Brown, you really have to have a, a sense of the larger context that his stories are set in. Um, Brown's somebody who would Brown influence today, Stephen King, in uh, his novel, The Shining, it's, it's based um, very closely on basically uh, on the story of Wheeland um, and when Stanley Kubrick did the, the movie of The Shining, he did kind of a Poe treatment where he got rid of all of the um, context that explains what happens to these characters in the story and just sets it in um, the Rockies in Colorado in this hotel where we can see demented uh, states of mind take over, um, which, are, uh, which are universal, I guess, uh, throughout all cultures. But he does away with the historical context, um, which is uh, the essence of, uh, of Brown's aesthetic. Um, why was Brown's father, Elijah, such an important influence on Brown as a writer? Um, his father um, really served as, as his portal into experience that he could use for his art. When Brown um, started writing, um, when he was in early, early 20s, short stories and abbreviated, um, or, uh, abbreviated novels, he never really completed one, um, he was copying Rousseau. Um, and they are palette efforts, whereas... Uh, um, when he began actually writing about the experience of his experience of his father, which are experiences of being experiences of being abused during the revolution, um, his prose took on some, uh, a, a real a, a real alive quality, um, and he sensed this, and he really began his his productive writing career by writing vignettes of what had happened to his father at uh, very difficult times of his father's life. Peter, as as you had mentioned, Brown was a Quaker and uh, living during the Revolutionary Era. How were Quakers treated during this time and did this treatment specifically influence Brown's writings? Yeah, they, they weren't treated well. Um, here's an episode that doesn't make it into David McCullough's biography of John Adams that, that intricately involves Brown and his family. In 1774, when uh, John Adams came to Philadelphia as part of, of the Massachusetts delegation to the Continental Congress, 
um, he was invited to Carpenter's Hall for a meeting what, of what he thought were just local citizens. And being a, um, an earnest delegate, he wanted to um, meet all the citizens he could so he could promote the cause uh, of, of uh, America vis-a-vis -vis, um, um, Parliament. And so he goes to Carpenter's Hall, and what he discovers is this large crowd of Quakers who basically interrogate him on the Massachusetts Puritans' treatment of Quakers over the years, um, particularly in the, in the mid-17th century. And in particular, there are three Quaker leaders who conduct the interrogation of Adams. And after this is over, he goes home and he writes this up in his diary, and he's fuming. He's been totally humiliated, he feels mortified. Um, and the experience was so memorable that 30 years later when he wrote his autobiography, um, he writes about this episode as if it had happened the day before. Um, this is in 1774 when this happens. In 1777, when he's still a delegate at the Second Continental Congress, he's put on a, on a committee of spies that's responsible of dealing with the local population um, when the British invade. And, and General Howe's armies are now maneuvering towards Philadelphia. And John Adams, as one, as one of three members of this committee of spies, helps make up a list with 11 names on it. Um, and these are of uh, Philadelphians who are potential traitors to the cause of, of the revolution. And at the top of the list, he puts the three people, um, the three Quakers who had interrogated him at this, at, in, in Carpenter's Hall in 1774. Now, these, these Quakers are no threat to the revolution. They're, they're, they're pacifists. Um, but he puts these, these, these three names on it, they, and the committee of three then talk to their local associates in the Pennsylvania Revolution, and they eventually make up a list with 41 names. On this list, the last name placed was Charles Brockton Brown's father. And 20 of these people, including Charles Brockton Brown's father, were sent to a concentration camp in Western Virginia, um, supposedly because they were a threat as traitors when the British occupied um, Philadelphia which is impossible because, again, these were all pacifists. Um, what John Adams was doing was he was worrying about who could possibly be a traitor in Philadelphia. He didn't really know the local population much. But when those other names were placed on the list, these names were placed on the list mostly by the Pennsylvania Scotch-Irish Presbyterian revolutionaries who were doing away with their enemy, the Quakers, um, who had controlled Philadelphia, who had, who had created Pennsylvania, and who were being displaced in a civil war um, in Pennsylvania um, from the 1750s through the 1770s. And what the American Revolution ultimately accomplished was the, 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 the final displacement of Quakers as really the ruling group in, in Pennsylvania. And Adams had a hand in, hand in that. Adams um, unwittingly had yeah. a hand in it, but it's disturbing that he yeah. put these three people on because they had embarrassed him um, in 1774. An interesting anecdote. Um, did the 1793 yellow fever epidemic in Philadelphia affect Brown's life and writings? Um, yeah, it, it, what, what it did was it gave him a subject that he felt he could write world literature about. Um, again, he's, he's searching for topics that um, he can write works of fiction about, and most of them seem fairly trivial. trivial. But with the, uh, the 1793 yellow fever um, epidemic where one-tenth of the citizenry of Philadelphia died, he had a subject um, that he was witness to 
um, that he could write about. Um, he knew Daniel Defoe had written a book, Journal of the Plague Year, about the 1666 um, plague in London. Um, so here was a subject he could write about. And one of his early novels, Arthur Mervyn, is partially about that. And a, a, a later novel, Ormond, also um, has that at the center of it. Uh, I, I imagine Brown, as you, as you mentioned, did not sell a whole lot of books, so he had to support himself in other ways? Um, he did, but not well. Um, his family didn't have much money because his father was a, a bankrupt, um, in large part because of the revolution, um, but also he had been a, a bankrupt before the revolution, too. Um, so Brown supported himself for a year or two by teaching at a Quaker school, grammar school, um, and then for the 10 years that he was uh, writing, he basically cadged off friends, um, would come home to Philadelphia to live in his family's house um, when he, um, when, when, when I guess he needed, he didn't have any money to pay for food. Um, and he tried um, to write uh, articles for, for uh, magazines. He was an editor of a number of literary magazines, but he essentially couldn't support himself. Uh, what would you say overall is Brown's place in American literature? I think he, he really uh, occupies a pivotal place in the history of American um, literature in that he's the first American to um, uh, write serious um, fiction. Um, and he figured out in America, which is a, a culture that's um, ideologically idealistic as, re as well as rhetorically idealistic, he figured how, out how you could write about the underside of American life. Um, in public life, you really have to always be positive in America. Um, we're, a, we're a people that emphasizes progress. And if you have any complaints with your life or your neighbor's life, um, do something to change or move somewhere else um, and, and uh, um, start a new life. His books um, really are about the consequences of being in America, the... Um, um, in, 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 in some books about, say, uh, the, the stealing of Indian land, in, in Wheeland about um, religious fanaticism that the official rhetoric of our culture um, doesn't touch. And he established the example of how a writer could do that and the serious American literary tradition ever since has followed that. Um, so I think uh, he showed writers it could be done. Um, and, to, and, to, and to this date, American Gothic is a very popular and sometimes profound form um, for American writers. Well, thank you very much, uh, Peter, today for enlightening us on Charles Brockton Brown and your excellent book, Charles Brockton Brown's Revolution and the Birth of the American Gothic, tells the story of a person who did indeed make some very important contributions to uh, American literature. And I thank you for sharing them with our audience today. I appreciate you inviting me. Thanks. You're welcome. This is Carl Helliker, and this is Book Chat.